Green Lunch by the Peak, the podcast where we talk to people way smarter than us about the most important topics in Canadian business and economics. I'm Taylor Scollin. And I'm Sarah Brightnika. So uh, a little bit of housekeeping before we get into the episode today. I just have a small favor to ask of our of our listeners, of you listening at home. Uh, and that is, if you are enjoying the podcast, please go and leave us a rating and a review in Apple Podcasts or Spotify. I know it's annoying when podcasts ask for this, the ones that I listen to. I'm like, okay, let's just get to the, the point. Uh, so I do want to keep these to, <laughs> to a minimum. And I also want to make it worth, worth your while to actually take the time and do it because I know it's kind of a hassle. So to sweeten the deal a bit, if you do leave a review, you can then send us an email at freelunch at readthepeak.com with a screenshot of it or just let us know the name that you left it under, I guess. And we will enter you into a monthly draw to win a peak merch pack. And uh, we've got some good stuff in there, I think. We've got like baseball caps and shirts and uh, it's all high-quality merch. The sweaters Uh, are looking very good. Yeah, yeah. We've upgraded the merch recently. So you do want to get your hands on that. And all you have to do... It's not the old merch, it's the new merch. (laughs) The old merch left a lot to be desired. Uh, but it's better now. So all you have to do is, is leave a review, then send us an email, freelunchreadthepeak.com, letting us know uh, which review is yours, and you will be entered in the draw. And there's not that many reviews right now. So your odds of winning are, are really good. Uh, so n- now's the time to get on it before the big rush. Anyway, with that out of the way, thank you for, for bearing with us. Uh, today we have an interesting episode. This was prompted by, by a report that I came across about something called employee ownership trust. So I'm curious, Sarah, had, had you heard of this before we'd started thinking about this episode? No, I, I hadn't. Similarly, I, uh, I, I came across uh, an article, uh, I think it was in the Globe, that kind of was unpacking uh, employee ownership trust. And it was a totally new concept uh, to me. Uh, and, uh, and I've really been enjoying reading up on it. But what are your first impressions? How does it how is it sounding to you? It sounds too good to be true to to me almost. Yeah, well, I mean, it's it, we're going to get into it in the episode with with our guest, but just to to set the stage here, I guess it's a a form of corporate ownership, uh, business ownership that is somewhat more common in other places like the US and the UK, does not really exist in Canada, but seems to combine some of the the best parts of the sort of standard model of the corporation that we have now with a more uh, widespread distribution of ownership shares amongst employees so that the people who work for a company can share more in in some of its upside um, and some of the the profits as well. So I don't know, I was interested in exploring this more and what this might actually look like in practice because, you know, as you sort of allude to, Sarah, like a lot of these ideas sound great in theory, but then maybe once you get into the, the details of it, there's a lot of problems with them. So... Uh, that's why I wanted to do this episode today. And we have a great guest on to talk to us about this. Dan Skilleter is a uh, former economic advisor to Minister of Finance and the Premier of Ontario, a self-described policy wonk, which is that's exactly what we're looking for on the show, and director of policy at Social Capital Partners, a Toronto-based nonprofit focused on wealth inequality. Dan, thanks for coming on Free Lunch. My pleasure. Uh, I'm a bit of a I consider myself a bit of a peak head, actually. So this is uh, this is quite a treat. Well, uh, flattery will get you everywhere with us, Dan. So I appreciate that. Uh, so let's just kick it off. 
with an overview of the report that you you put together with social capital partners about employee ownership trusts. Uh, maybe you can just walk us through the high-level findings of, of that report and specifically narrow in on uh, what exactly employee ownership trusts are, um, how they how they work, and how they compare to some of the other ownership models that are in the the marketplace today? Yeah, and I find uh, uh, in these early conversations when I'm trying to introduce this, there's sort of a a bit of a gateway into understanding employee ownership trusts as one uh, specific form of employee ownership in a broader ecosystem or umbrella of employee ownership structures. Um, myself, uh, social capital partners, we're very much in favor of um, most forms, or I guess every form of employee ownership. And you know that broadly speaking would be ways in which employees can meaningfully um, take an ownership stake in the companies that they work for. And um, there are probably ways that many of the listeners to this podcast are more familiar with in that regard. So the, certainly before I became deep in this particular policy, the ones that I was most familiar with were co-ops, um, employee stock options, which are usually given to management executives, particularly in high growth firms where uh, they're sort of compensating you on the potential upside as opposed to it being uh, just salary, and then employee stock purchase plans, which was made, I think, famous at least in in my uh, in my age cohort amongst the WestJet, where they would sort of um, allow employees to opt into a discounted uh, stock purchase plan, where they would get to get um, you know basically be more invested in their company, but they were paying for those stocks over time, um, but at a discounted rate. So those are those are sort of the the ways that I think most Canadians might be somewhat familiar with employee ownership. Those are great forms of employee ownership, but they are a bit different than the one that we have been talking about for the last two years and advocating for. So the the, the kind of the two principles that we find to be very important about employee ownership trusts that don't really meet the mark when it comes to uh, the forms I just discussed is broad, accessible um, ownership to all employees and at no cost to them. So no, no requirement for an employee to either have uh, their, their salary deducted or to actually just pay out of, their, out of their pocket to participate, that they get their shares or their equity for free, and that it's not just um, a form of ownership that's concentrated towards upper management like you would find in stock options that basically every employee participates there might be some um some thresholds like if you started last week you might not be able to be eligible but for the most part every single employee is um, taking advantage of it at relatively equal terms so those are the principles that employee ownership trusts sort of center in on and how it differentiates itself from the forms of employee ownership that already do exist here in Canada. So, so as an employer, why would I hand over equity to my employees for free? Yeah, so it's not for free, and I'll get to that in a second, but the most common way that these transactions happen in the US and in the UK, where they're very popular, is you have a business owner who's retiring, or they're, you know, let's say five to 10 years away from 
uh, retirement and they're looking at their succession planning and they're taking a look at the universe of their options. And their options are typically in Canada right now, selling to a competitor. Sometimes those might be non-Canadian foreign competitors. Uh, sometimes they might be domestic. Uh, but also you might be looking at a private equity firm. Someone else is just going to take it over and um, and run it. And those are really the two options you have right now, unless you have uh, a family member who's willing to take it over, which statistically is less and less likely. We're seeing that being less and less the case in business successions. And so what this does, employee ownership trusts, is it's a way, a, a new, I, I'd say third option that Canadian business owners would have available to them to be able to make a transaction, to sell to their employees, receive a fair market value in return, um, and be able to reap some of the benefits of knowing that the legacy of their of their company is going to be um, held intact, and that uh, they can feel good that the employees who have helped build up their business over, you know, possibly decades are going to get to reap the benefits of it as well. And so the, one more follow up on that, just so I make sure that I have the details of this right. The the trust takes out debt and uses that to buy out the existing equity owners. Is that how this works? Yeah. So you've got the owner and for simplicity's sake, let's just say that the owner of a mid-sized business had 100% ownership of, the, of their company. And if they were looking to set up a situation through employee ownership trusts, which they can't really do in Canada today, but they can do in the US and the UK, and they wanted to sell to their employees, a trust would be created. And that trust would have all employees as its beneficiary. And it would do a, tr a debt transaction with that trust that, that the owner itself sometimes in conjunction with a financer like a bank, would put up the debt for that ownership stake to be transferred to the trust, which again, all, the, all employees are beneficiaries of. And then over time, um, in between, you know, sometimes five, sometimes seven, sometimes 10 years, the owner then gets repaid through the profitability of the company through the trust. So it's, it's um, rather than a owner getting paid all in one to two years from a private equity firm, the owner gets paid back at a slower pace through the profits of the company by the trust as it is giving over equity to its employees. Okay, interesting. I have so many follow-up questions to this. So how, how does the debt, how do the employees interact with the debt? Like, let's say, you know, a employee ownership trust is set up, um, mm -hmm. someone's part of this trust, and then, you know, they they leave. How does, how, how does it work from the employee perspective in terms of how they manage the debt? Yeah. So from, from an a particular employee, like Sarah, if, if, if the peak was employee-owned, you would not, you know, be on the hook for any of the debt. Okay. You, you are a beneficiary of the trust. And in terms of how you interact with the equity and the you know benefit that is owed to you by being an owner, that really depends on how it's structured from the government policy point of view. Uh, the US and the UK have a lot of similarities in terms of how they structured this policy. But one of the big differentiators is in the UK, it's mostly a profit sharing scheme. So at the, at the end of every single year, the profits get distributed to um, every employee 
based on a relatively equal formula that might have to do with tenure or position or seniority and salary. Whereas in the US, you'd be on an annual basis given new shares, new equity. And so you'd be accumulating equity over time. And it would only be when you exit the company to retire, or maybe you found a different job, that that is when you'd be cashing out your equity and you'd be selling it back to the trust who would then be recycling those shares. So in terms of um, how we, how you you benefit as an employee, there's definitely different ways that it could be set up. And a lot of that would have to do with how the government structures trust, trust uh, structures tax incentives. There's, there's a lot to be um, designed on that front. What about who's in charge? Like if we said hypothetically, okay, peak becomes employee-owned, Taylor, Brett, Alex, they're off on vacation, sorry, retirement, somewhere lovely. Who decides who's in charge at that point? Like, how does, does it work in, is there a succession plan that plays out in the form of, you know, certain employees kind of going towards certain executive positions or how does the org structure get, get decided after that point? Yeah. And so, Um, Immediately after the transaction takes place, and now the employee-owned trust owns the company, it is very different than um, a cooperative. And I think a a cooperative is where many people's minds go because they're a bit more familiar with that. Um, As you likely know, in a co-op, it is a direct democracy format. So all the employees automatically, the work structure becomes, um, you know, every employee gets a voice in the decision-making. That is not the case with employee ownership trusts. Now, uh, the org structure itself is typically maintained in its entirety. So you'd still have a CEO, you'd still have a board, you'd still have um, management, you'd still have frontline workers. So the decision-making of the business itself usually stays pretty identical. However, um, what we've seen play out over since you know about 2014 in the UK when they introduced things, and since the 70s in the US, since this has been in place, is that employee-owned companies typically have more democratic features to their governance. So um, councils are usually set up so that there is um, you know a representative from the workers who gets to be part of the board or at least has a direct line into consul- uh, consultation. So it's probably not too surprising that the types of companies that would do this are also the types of companies that would be um, paying more attention to the um, to the desires of the workers and what the workers ultimately want. One thing that uh, I'm, I'm still not totally clear on is, does this only kick in at the point of succession? Or do employees, even while the current ownership is in place still, did they start accumulating shares and then say if they leave the company, even while the current ownership is still in place, they can get paid out on those shares? How does that timeline work? Think of it as like there's a transaction date and the transaction date is when the owner inks the deal with the trust that is negotiating with them. Up until that time, it's usually not publicized, like employees are not sitting there knowing that this transaction is about to happen. Um, because what if it falls through? Like it's not um, like it's it's almost like there's pre-transaction and post-transaction. And post-transaction, if you are an employee and if you meet the minimum threshold again, which is, you know, uh, relatively small to 
you know, be considered an employee that 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 is eligible for the plan. You are now in the employee ownership scheme, and whether that's profit sharing or share ownership, you are now a beneficiary of the trust. You automatically become a legal beneficiary. So on a on a go forward basis, you will be, um, you know, part part of that profit sharing, part of that share allocation. I do believe that on that first transaction, that first year, there is usually some, or or there can be some, you know, additional, um, like compensation going on for those who have been there for a while. Like it could be the case that if you've been a 40 year employee, the amount of shares you get on year one is not the same amount of shares you will get every year thereafter there like you you can devise it in such a way that you are on year one mm-hmm. giving greater amounts of compensation and shares to those who have um you know different levels of tenure etc but then on a go forward basis it's formulaic okay so in a typical private corporation you have shareholders and then maybe shareholders don't have a day-to-day say over how the company is managed, but they ultimately appoint the board and the board is responsible to, the management is responsible to them. Uh, how does that work in this system? Like who is who decides who's going to run the company, uh, even if it's only at the level of like installing someone and then, you know, maybe voting to renew their tenure every year or two? How does that work? Uh, you, you guys are, are starting to get into like incredibly technical territory that differs in the US and UK in a way that Canada has like it's we we've written like you know 30 page memos on how governance structure could work here and it's not really i i can't give you a and this is how it would be but what i what i can say is the tr- you know if the trust owns 100% of the company it is essentially appointing the board and the trusts legal obligation is to look after its beneficiaries who are the employees. So there's like a very virtuous circle of the uh, the board and therefore the CEO who's appointed by the board looking after the interests of the employees. But in terms of like exactly how that works, um, it is, uh, there's a lot to be determined. And especially in Canada where this doesn't exist, I'd only really be able to speculate and tell you what we would maybe recommend. Okay, I do want to hear that, but maybe we should just uh, clear up, like, what is the legal status of this in Canada? And why does it exist in the US and UK, but not here? Uh, That's a good question. Why doesn't it exist here? And that's because Canada hasn't made a concerted effort to make this a policy, despite it being, like, relatively prolific in the US and UK, especially the US, like, you know, the associations, there, there's an entire academic institute at Rutgers dedicated to studying this and to, um, and to, and to furthering the education and information and data sets that exist on this. So attention just really hasn't been paid to it here in Canada. And there are legal obstacles stopping one from doing it. So there are some, some CEOs, some, some bold, intrepid, pioneering CEOs who have tried to do versions of this in Canada. But because none of the trusts that exist currently in the Income Tax Act do all the things that you would need to have to make this a smooth operation, and it's not a, it's not a single trust advertised as being for employee ownership, they've had to do so um, by 
being uh, very invested in doing this, and there were no incentives to do it. So in both the US and UK, the governments have created a standalone dedicated trust for employee ownership to facilitate this. They've produced guidance documents to make it much easier so that the advisory community, be it accountants or tax lawyers, know exactly that this exists. And then they've provided, uh, in, in, in the case of US and UK, multiple tax incentives to make this incredibly attractive so that if a retiring business owner is consulting with their accountant about what next steps are for succession, obviously employee ownership is going to be on the table to talk about. And we've seen that that in, in the UK since 2014, when they introduced the tax incentive, I believe about 5% of all new uh, of, of all business transactions have become employee owned um, in the last two years. So wow. it's, you know, it's making a real debt. I, I want to take this to a high level just for a second here, although I know we're all dying to get into the specifics of the Income Tax Act. But wondering, Dan, um, if you have a view on this, right? It's that um, looking at the employee kind of employer relationship, it feels like workers used to stay put at their jobs for a really long time and kind of rely on the pension provided from that company to, you know, ensure financial security into retirement. And now most people don't stay at jobs that long and companies, you know, don't provide that level of security. So I'm wondering if you could maybe explain how the dynamics of the labor market have changed over the recent decades um, and kind of moving towards the the models that we're talking about now. Yeah, I, th- I think you're absolutely right that we've seen as a phenomena the idea of staying in a single company in a single job for the duration of your career and retiring with a pension is something that folks in our generation, let alone uh, Gen Z and, and those coming up, it's just it's seemingly unviable, wouldn't even be on their radar in some ways. It's it's really atypical at this point. And employee retention is an incredibly important thing for CEOs. I'm sure even uh, yourselves at the peak, you know, you want to be very invested in your employees. You want them to stick around for the long haul. And we've actually found that um, since we've been on this employee ownership journey in Canada, the number of CEOs who have reached out to us saying that they're interested in this, interested in the advocacy, interested in doing it themselves eventually or immediately if it was if it was a possibility, one of the number one reasons that they're they're bringing that up is because they see it as such a tool for retention. Um, being able to have an alignment of incentives where your employees know, especially if it was you know uh, on a share based model, that they would be accruing new shares and equity in that company year in, year out, and that they're invested in that company getting stronger and more profitable over time is really powerful and something that would, um, you know, if they were looking to leave or pursue a different job opportunity, they'd really have to weigh the balance of, well, something else might have a higher salary um, or, you know, might be less of a commute, but is it going to offer me the same long-term wealth building benefits as my current employer that's employee owned. And I think that that is one of the things that um, we hear most often when we're discussing this policy with the, uh, with the business sector. So if employee owned companies are a way for workers to maybe become a bit more financially secure and employers are seeing it as um, a bit of a, a, a retention tool. Um, 
I mean, I, I'm wondering how it also relates to the, I guess, a bigger conversation about, you know, where we've gone with stock option plans to it seems now, especially in the short term, we're going to uh, see these like big kind of exits, right? Um, that uh, like these, I guess, these big exits that um, employees kind of rely on when they kind of opt into um, share purchase plans or, or share uh, or stock option plans. And so is there a consideration with there being um, the economy, I guess, slowing down, the share buying becoming a, a little less lucrative that plays into this kind of bigger conversation of, of why maybe uh, it's worth talking about employee ownership models right now? I think I think it's been uh, it would have been as relevant, you know, ten years ago as it as it is today. And part of that has to do with the types of companies that do this in the U.S. and the U.K. Um, employee ownership is not typically something that is pursued by high growth tech firms. They typically just use the stock option plans, and in some ways, that's that might be the more appropriate piece. Remember when you are an owner and you're looking to sell to your employees through an employee ownership trust, one of the most important things that um, needs to be done is to have a, have an understanding of what the fair market value of that company is so that that transaction can take place with the, with the trust. And um, as, as I'm sure you're, you know, you know how incredibly difficult it would be to find on any given day a, a fair market value for a um, perhaps not even yet profitable, but high growth tech firm. And so just, just based on that, it's usually not the perfect fit. I'm not saying it would be impossible, but really what, um, when you look at the firms that are doing this in the US and UK, they've typically been around for a while. They are typically profitable and have, um, have rather predictable revenue levels so that it is apparent to everyone that it make this this sort of a deal makes sense and that it's you know the owner who's selling knows that they will be paid back through the profits in the next 5 to 10 years and for the employees uh, who are represented by you know the trust in the negotiation who are legally bound you know get get the right deal they know that they are paying a a fair market value for that for the, for the company up front so that's why uh, you, it's it's somewhat constrained, um, and and this is usually not a conversation about uh, the high the high growth sectors. What are some examples of companies that are doing this in the U.S. and U.K. Re- retail? Um, one one example that we we love to use in the U.S. because most people have interacted with it and know it is Publix Grocery, Publix with a, with an X on uh-huh. the end. So they are one hundred percent employee owned. Um, and they are roughly the same size as Loblaws in terms of the amount of employees they have. And there are amazing stories of, and you, you know, going back to our conversation about retention, there are, there are stories of frontline grocery workers at Publix who have retired with a um, million dollars or more in their share account. And that, again, is a, in addition to their salaries and whatever whatever other benefits they may have had. So. Those are the types of stories that um, you know really uh, make for a compelling case for how, how this structure can be incredibly beneficial for frontline workers who otherwise don't have the access to build wealth. Um, because you know, if you have if you're if you're existing entirely on a salary, 
it's incredibly difficult, especially as the cost of living keeps on going up, to be able to make those savings, make the investments, have access to the right asset classes that are actually high yield. So uh, this could be a really powerful tool. Do, do you find that these uh, companies that use this model elsewhere have higher salaries than what you might get at a comparable company that doesn't offer this or you know, better benefits or What's the what's the experience like for an employee at one of these companies aside from accruing shares? Yeah, so there's been a lot of good study in the US on this because they do have a bit of a, a research ecosystem that's developed since the 70s. And what they have found is that uh, work if, if you're looking at a cross comparison between employee owner workers and non-employee owner workers, they do tend to have higher salaries. They tend to have much more wealth, I believe, because as, as, an, as an average in the US, uh, they, they have 92% more wealth than employees wow. that are not employee-owned. Um, and likewise, the those impacts are, um, if you isolate mi- minority groups, disadvantaged groups, it's, uh, it's much more than that. For instance, Black employee owners in the United States have on average three times the median wealth of Black households nationally. Are there any downsides uh, from the employee perspective? I, I think the natural comparison to draw is between um, like stock options plans. Like sometimes, you know, uh, employees will take a significantly smaller salary to kind of benefit from you know a, a better stock stock option package. But is is that kind of to your point earlier? Is that kind of a characteristic of those high growth firms um, that are you know that that kind of or the employees that are at these high growth firms that kind of fall victim to that? Or do we see um, the same types of, of, of risks in terms of kind of a salary perspective potentially playing out? Yeah, we don't actually. And I believe that in the US, oh, I hope my, my boss is going to kill me if I get if I cite this one wrong, because we've been over it a few times. But in the US, I believe there's actually a regulation that prohibits it being used as a way to depress wages. So all of these shares, all the benefits that you have through employee ownership, um, they can only be icing on the cake. They cannot be used as a way to um, make the comp- the, uh, the otherwise comp- compensation that you would have lower. And that, and that again, to the stats of actually salaries and wealth being higher, uh, has not been the case or what we've seen play out in in these other jurisdictions. Sounds pretty good. Uh, so if someone wanted to pursue this option, um, we saw the news last week about how there was kind of progress towards, I think, the, the legality around being able to set up an employee ownership trust. It, it, are business owners able to now pursue this as an option or, or where do we stand there? They're close, we, we hope. Um, so the federal government here in Canada has, in its last two budgets, signaled that it wants to do this. In its last budget, it said it was going to create a dedicated trust. And so all eyes are sort of on this upcoming budget to see if they're going to go through with it, what the details might be, and whether or not there are going to be incentives attached to it like there are in the US and UK. So just through the advocacy that's been going on on this, and you know, there's a, a pretty large group of folks um, from the business sector, both small and large, from especially the advisory community in tax and, and legal, small businesses, business associations, not-for-profits, 
a whole sort of ecosystem has been um, growing on this, and it formed recently a coalition that would have a single voice called the Canadian Employee Ownership Coalition. And so you know, it's looking for a few things out of this upcoming budget and um, happy to go into that. But th those, that, that's sort of where things stand right now is it still remains relatively difficult, in some ways uh, incredibly difficult to pursue this if you are a business owner. Curious if there's any opposition to this and what the opposition would be saying, maybe people that don't want this included in the upcoming budget. Yeah, so there is no opposition to this. And I think that gets into something I was hoping to touch on, which is just the almost miraculous bipartisan nature of this. So in the United States, this policy, uh, Bernie Sanders attends its conferences and is in favor of it. It is uh, loved by both the Republicans and the Democrats, which is a very difficult feat for any policy in the modern era. Same in the UK, there is there is zero controversy about which party is going to take power and what that might mean for the, the plumbing or the incentives associated with this. And here in Canada, we've actually seen already in the last uh, about two years, considerable support from all parties. So in the last federal election, it was in um, the Conservative Party of Canada's platform that they would go through with it. In this past provincial election, the Andrea Horvath NDP had it in their platform that they were in favor of this. And the Liberal government of Canada has obviously put it in its last two budgets. So there is um, no real opposition to speak of uh, on this file. So what are the specific policy recommendations that uh, you're hoping to see in the next budget? The government committed last year to setting up a dedicated trust. So that's kind of the vehicle that would need to be created in legislation in the Income Tax Act to make uh, a transaction like this easy, we hope off the shelf, uh, something that can be done and uh, noticed by the advisory community with relative ease. And we'd want certain things associated with that trust. So we'd want very clear and simple rules so that the trust is protecting taxpayers, first of all, and protecting employees, um, while being simple enough that it's encouraging the business community to be able to take it up and use it. We also talked a little bit about how this um, employee ownership trust differs in some ways from other forms. And we think that these two things are integral to it, that uh, the benefits need to be provided to all employees and at no cost. So again, this is, this is something that should be broadly accessible and that all employees get to participate in. And then we think that to encourage the take up of it so that business owners looking to sell actually go ahead and do this, a tax incentive, just like they have in the US and the UK, where there's a capital gains exemption for the sale, um, would do a lot to even the playing field so that it can compete with something like a private equity purchase or a, pur from, a purchase from a competitor. Yeah, that kind of gets at another thing that I was wondering as we were talking about this, which is like, what are the, if you're a business owner, aside from the, I assume like, you know, spiritual benefit of seeing your business live on and not be sold to some like private equity vultures. Yeah. What are the <laughs> the incentives that are associated with this? Like, why would I opt for a payout of the same amount over mm, a longer period of time as opposed to just like taking my money and running uh, up front? Yeah. Well. Interestingly, the uh, Canadian Federation of Independent Business has done a number of surveys on this. 
um, on succession and, and employee ownership played a bit of a role in some of their questions. And business owners are really, you know, in many cases, they've invested their lives or, or multiple generations in their family in a business. And employees are like family members to them. In many cases, you know, they're the lifeblood of a particular community, especially in smaller rural areas. And wanting to have some sort of legacy or a feeling as though that business will um, have a future, a future that they can be proud of is like a pretty high, when they're ranking in order the things that they care about, that's like right up there with financial compensation. So employee ownership trusts is definitely would high, would sc- score high, I think, on that in contrast to selling to perhaps a private equity firm where there, you know, there's no guarantee as to how that company will will continue, especially once the owner is mostly extracted from it. So that's definitely one of the one of the ways that um, uh, business owners have an incentive to think about it. What we've been talking about is, uh, or I think we've already mentioned as part of this conversation that it's it's it can be more involved to pursue this in the U.S. and the U.K. There are you know there are more considerations. It's a it's a uh, probably a, at least a slightly trickier transaction, especially if the if your advisor or your accountant is new to it and hasn't done one before, and you're also taking on a little bit more risk and getting the proceeds over a longer period of time than you would through a, a traditional you know private equity purchase. So those are the types of things that a tax credit, a tax, sorry, rather a, a tax incentive begin to level the playing field on that front as well. So that when a business owner is thinking about their succession plan, it's an entirely viable option to pursue selling to their employees. Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, okay. One more technical kind of in the weeds follow-up here. Um, does this impact like the day-to-day operations of a business for an employer at all? It sounds like there's some regulations that are in place in other jurisdictions around how these things all work. Does this like add any sort of red tape or I guess bureaucracy that you have to comply with in order to run something like this? Or is it kind of just like you set it up and then it runs and when you're ready to do a transition, it's like in place for you to execute that. The, the business functions um, essentially just as it did before. And, and as we discussed, the management structure, the org chart would stay the same if you wanted it to. The thing that would be net new, for instance, in the US, if, um, if, if the peak was in the US and was employee owned, and you know, Sarah needs a particular distribution of shares every year, and that needs to be on some sort of formula. And so there is some sort of housekeeping that might be net new and, 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 and more. It's not tremendously expensive, but there are some costs associated with it. And typically in the US, you don't see this get recommended for firms that don't at least have about 20 employees. Most of the firms that do this are about 20 to 500. There are some very large firms like Publix, like we, we mentioned, that do this as well. But if you're an incredibly small company, the administration and um, some of the some of the costs associated with doing it might be a little bit prohibitive. That was kind of in line with with my follow up is is wondering how this would play out at a really small 
uh, company, like let's say it's a, I don't know, a family run pharmacy with like 10, 15 employees. And, and the idea of, you know, we're talking about share distribution and, and, and boards and, and things like that. So this structure would be less attractive as an option for, for them. Right. Yeah. I think possible to do, but I think that there are probably other structures that would be easier if what you're trying to do is uh, share equity or ownership in, in a company that small. Are there any tools available uh, for, for businesses like that? I, I'm just thinking of uh, maybe again, that example right to you, if you've kind of built up a family run pharmacy and you have, you know, 10 or so uh, employees and, and you're not a target for a private equity buyout or for, you know, maybe any buyout for that matter. I mean, is there still a way that you could um, facilitate ownership of the business, like changing hands for the employees so you can kind of get a bit, a bit of a payout and your employees can, you know, get a, get a piece of maybe the business that you've, you've built? or is there is there nothing like that right now? So this is a bit outside of my expertise, but my understanding is that most of those options entail the employees putting up some of their own cash to get to get in with equity. So in terms of what we're talking about with employee ownership trusts where the employees pay zero dollars out of their pocket to eventually become owners, I'm not aware of there being a, a simple structure like this. There was some interesting stuff in your report uh, about how businesses with employee ownership trusts manage through economic downturns, shocks, that sort of thing. Can you talk a little bit about some of the ways that that impacts how businesses can function during uh, more difficult economic times? Yeah, and, and this gets to, you know, what are the benefits of employee ownership trusts? Like, wh- why should politicians uh, be in favor of this? And what we have found, and again, this speaks to how it's uh, held up across the ideological spectrum with multiple parties having interests. It's a bit of a Rorschach's test in terms of what you see and what you like about mm-hmm. it, whether it's a new tool for business succession, whether it's building more wealth for uh, for frontline workers who otherwise might not have much of an opportunity. But from a macroeconomic picture, certainly the economic resilience is a huge, a huge component of it. And it, it, it's just the case. And it sort of makes sense when you think about the incentives and the alignment that in tough times, if all of the employees have an ownership stake and really need or would you know, really want the company to be able to get through that hump, and be rowing in the same direction so that they can come out on the other side and continue to accumulate the wealth that is caught up in the company, that they're going to be able to um, do that more effectively. And again, pulling from the US, which is statistic rich, that has been the case. And as we cited in our last study, uh, there was actually some hot off the press uh, research done post COVID that found that US ESOP companies, employee owned companies, um, they were between three to four times more likely to retain their staff compared to non-ESOP companies. So, you know, they're less likely to knee-jerk reaction. Let's 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 do layoffs, and only about a quarter of those companies cut employees uh, compared to about sixty percent of non non-employee-owned companies that that uh, have layoffs. And also, interestingly. Um, uh, employee-owned companies in the U.S. during COVID were 
faster and more likely to let their employees work from home. So about 85% of them did in versus about 66% of companies that were not employee owned. So you can kind of see that there's just a, a different a different uh, ethos going on within these employee owned companies, which again, makes, makes sense when you think about uh, how they're being run and, and how they were formed to begin with. And demographically, we're at, you know, a really important time because we have the mass retiring of baby boomers looking to retire. And the Canadian Federation of Independent Business also has done some recent work on this because they, they're in the business of trying to understand the succession planning of their, their membership. And they found that in a report that was just out about a month or two ago that 76% of business owners in Canada are looking to retire and exit their business within the next decade. So that's like, we're talking about the largest transition of business assets in Canada taking place over the next decade. And so if we want to, if we want them to have a, you know, a new choice and not miss the opportunity here, getting this done uh, quickly is going to be really important. And wondering if the, if the budget was to, um, roll out kind of these, these tax, uh, incentives that would, uh, make it possible for businesses to pursue this option. Are there any roadblocks that stand in the way? Um, I'm particularly thinking of existing shareholders here. If, if, if you're talking about a company owned by shareholders that is looking at its exit strategy, I think they just wouldn't choose this model. Like I, my understanding is that everyone prefers optionality. So knowing that this might exist as one path would be, would be preferable to it not existing. So I'm not, I'm not, I can't think of anyone like from a shareholder perspective where just the mere existence of this would be seen as uh, a negative. From the perspective of someone who is not an employee at a company where this is likely to happen, does not own a company where they're looking to transition out, just a general, you know, member of the public. Are there larger economic benefits that they would see from something like this? Like there is, is there a reason for them to want to see more employee ownership trust in the economy? Well, I think, I think I fall into that basket, Taylor, and I definitely would want to see it uh, come through. And I think, I think from a, a macroeconomic picture, first of all, I think Canada will be better off. We talked about the economic resilience of these companies. Imagine a whole bunch of employee-owned companies scattered across Canada and what that would mean for um, all those local communities being more uh, resilient, especially to shocks that, that are no doubt going to continue to take place. And then the other reason why I would just, from a macro perspective, be really encouraged by it is that they're more likely to keep jobs local. And for the same, for some of the same re- reasons we, we've talked about, if you're if you're an employee-owned company um, in Toburg, you're less likely to consider whether or not that next capex expenditure should be overseas or somewhere else. You're you're more likely to to keep the jobs you have and consider growing where you are. Um, and that's just you know a, a feature of it being employee-owned. So that, you know the, the trust is look is looking after the. For its, for its beneficiaries, which are the employees that are already located in a local community. You already mentioned some figures from the U.S. and U.K. around adoption of the employee ownership trust model there. Uh, is there any projections or, or forecasts about what the impact would be in Canada in terms of adoption if the policy changes that you're asking for end up being implemented? 
We can talk a lot about the US, we can talk a lot about the UK where they study this, where it's been around for a significant amount of time. So the results have already sort of begun to unfold, if not have you know become quite well known. And so we undertook an economic report with an economist named Brett House to do some projections of what might happen in Canada over the next eight years if Canada adopted a similar framework to the UK. We picked the UK because it sort of has the, the simplest framework and it only started in 2014. So it's just, you know, it was a bit cleaner in terms of understanding what the comparison might be like. And so the results that we came to were that we thought over the next eight years, it would be reasonable that between 500 and 750 private companies might convert to becoming employee-owned. And that would mean between 50,000 and 115,000 workers would become employee owners, and they would be sharing in up to $9.6 billion in new wealth that they, that they otherwise would be going to traditional shareholders. Okay, well, unfortunately, we are out of time here. Uh, thank you so much, Dan, for coming on the podcast and uh, sharing your your knowledge about this and answering all of our uh, highly technical questions, I guess, about the, the model. I appreciate it. Okay, so Sarah, after talking to Dan, how do you feel about the concept of employee ownership trusts? I, f- I feel pretty good about the concept, honestly. Uh, you know, if I think anyone who spends decades working at a company uh, deserves maybe a little piece of of the pie. I think it's particularly encouraging to hear about you know the movement that's kind of sweeping through. Um, uh, sectors in the U.S. And, and and the U.K., especially when it comes to low wage work, right? And and those are just uh, incredible stories. Um, was looking at Publix online uh, as we were going through the conversation, and uh, I love it. I love everything about it. Um, their marketing materials are very kind of employee owned forward, uh, and, and generally, it just it, it, it's a it's a feel good good concept. And I'm really interested to see how it'll shake out in the next budget meeting. What do you think? Yeah, no, I, I totally agree. I mean, we we got pretty deep into some of the technical details of of how it would all work, um, and it seems like you know a reasonable a reasonable option. I mean, the fact that people who who own these businesses seem to be on board with it as a a way of succession that is maybe more attractive than you know selling to a competitor or to private equity. I think that's really interesting. And yeah, like the public's story that that Dan told, I thought was really compelling, right? Because that's kind of what you would hope for is that if you spend 40 years of your life working at a company that by the end of it, you have enough to retire and have like a dignified, uh, a dignified retirement, which unfortunately, in a lot of these low wage service jobs uh, is often not the case these days, right? Yeah, well, that's the complaint of these big companies. Well, all companies really is that like there's just there's there's no no loyalty anymore, is there? Right, but that's on the part of employees. But it's also you know on on the part of employers that once used Absolutely. to offer these yeah. like big you know uh, you know these these incredible retirement packages, right? Like you could work at a company and then you could kind of comfortably you know coast through retirement on on the pension that you that you were in there. And and now that that's uh, going away. Um, it seems like, I mean, there's 
more than that, there's so many factors that are, you know, contributing to this, uh, to this maybe, you know, being a, a good solution, right? As far as um, workers wanting to have a bit more security later in life and into retirement, you know, employers looking to get back that retention that they were seeing decades ago and have kind of lost along the way. Um, and so it seems like a, like, like a win-win if, if it could all um, if it could all shake out, but particularly it's like, I, I wonder if people will go back to, uh, that style of working where you did, you know, stay at a company for five, you know, 10 mm. plus years. It seems like a totally feels like we've been kind of, you know, de, uh, de, uh, socialized from doing that completely. It almost seems like a strange thing to do these days. So mm-hmm. I, I wonder if we will find our way back there. Yeah. I mean, uh, this seems like a way to, get there. I think uh, there are still some question marks for me that uh, I would like to get more answers about. Like after we finished recording, I thought of a bunch of other things that sort of made me wonder how uh, successful this model could be. Like, for example, how how Dan was talking about one of the benefits of this from a you know broader perspective is that uh, employee-owned businesses with the employee-owned trust model are more likely to keep jobs in a community as opposed to mm-hmm. uh, outsourcing them overseas where it might be cheaper, uh, which is great. But I wonder, how does that add to their costs? Does that affect their ability to compete with companies that do make that decision to you know, get the cheapest labor possible and make all these decisions, which are not necessarily in, tr- in the interest of the community in which they operate or of their current employees, but maybe in the interest of the business as like a shareholder enterprise, right? So how do you, how do those things end up balancing out and does it impact the, the ability of these businesses to compete? I, I wonder about that. Yeah. And, and does it stifle innovation? Cause I mean, as you know, I'm sure innovation kind of happens when people kind of jump from companies, you know, taking ideas from one place to mm-hmm. another. So as much as we have these, you know, com- complaints about people moving around, it's also been uh, a good thing for, you know, for, for advancements across, you know, all types of industries. So a really interesting concept and idea to, to dive into. And it is an idea kind of in this stage because we're going to see how things play out, you know, in the budget meeting and, and something that we'll have to keep an eye on. And, and hopefully, I mean, the U.S. has that trove of data that, you know, Dan was kind of referencing. But, you know, soon I'm sure we'll have we'll have more numbers on on what the what the effects are up here as well. Yeah, no, it'll be interesting to see. And maybe if we if we do get action on this during the budget, we'll actually get some real world case studies that we can dig deeper into and and see how it plays out. But do you think that's a good place to leave it for now? I think so. All right. Well, this has been another episode of Free Lunch by the Peak. I'm your co-host, Taylor Scollin. You can follow me on Twitter at Taylor Scollin. And I'm Sarah Bartnika. You can follow me on Twitter at Sarah Bartnika. And if you enjoyed this and want more business news, do subscribe to our daily business newsletter. That's at readthepeak.com and search and follow Free Lunch by The Peak wherever you get your podcasts. And one brief reminder before you go, please do rate and review if you can. As I mentioned at the beginning of the episode, we are giving away a monthly Peak merch package uh, to a lucky winner. All you do, leave a review, leave a rating, email to us at freelunch at readthepeak.com and you'll be automatically entered to win some of that Peak merch. Do it. It's good merch. It's great merch. See you next time.